If you would take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We are in part three of a four-part series on church discipline. My goal is not to belabor the subject, but to definitely address it to, to give us all the understanding that it matters. That if God's Word speaks to it, we need to be aware of it, and we need to be practicers of it, or practicing of it. And I want to share a couple of things with you before we dive into the heart and the mind of the Apostle Paul in dealing with trying situations in the church. So I want to draw your attention first to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. <clears throat> Sorry, not 3. Forgive me. I don't know what I'm drinking up here. Um, chapter 13, verse 7. Forgive me. I heard all the pages like, why are they turning? Okay, never mind. Forgive me. Well, let's take it slow so we just get it. It says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, I'm not here to give an exposition on the office of elders yet. We will do that at a later date. But just to draw a moment's attention to leadership in the church and why it's important to observe those people who are in leadership positions. Number one, remember, we are to be mindful of them. Notice it says, those who led you. That word means to supervise or to oversee or to set a course. The idea is to point a direction. The idea is to have to make decisions with your welfare in mind. It says here, who spoke the word of God to you. Why is that important? Because there is no other basis for anything I or an elder would have to say to you. There's nothing to be discounted as far as wisdom in this life is concerned. But it's often the wisdom of our personal lives that put us in great hindrance to biblical understanding. And so I would say that all of our wisdom needs to be springing from a biblical Wisdom And notice what it says. Here's the result. Considering the result of their conduct. In other words, you're to examine carefully. It's the idea of looking at something over and over and over and over and over until you become incredibly familiar with it. Considering the result, the end point. How is this going to end for them in their life? What will the end look like? Are they going to finish well? If you want to know more about finishing well for Sunday school in this room, Pastor Steve is going to be teaching on finishing well. In fact, let me share something with you. I was listening to a man speak the other day who had some colleagues who did a study of everyone's life in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And if they had any sort of weighty data on them whatsoever... And I think I've shared this with you before, but I heard it again. I have to bring it up again. It's, it's so sticking in my mind. It's incredible. Anybody that had any significant data about their life, they weighed it out. Every character in the Bible, every personality that's brought up. And then they did a mathematical equation. And they found out that only 17% of the people in the Bible that they had information on finished their lives well. Finished their lives believing. Finished their lives faithful. Other people had fallen away. Let me give you a great example. King Solomon. Wisest man besides the Lord Jesus ever walked the face of the earth and he did not finish well. 
Only 17%. So leaders in the church are not to just be speaking to us the word of God, but we are also to look to them and be considering, examining, carefully rolling over and over in our minds what the outcome of their life is going to be. Notice it says, the result of their conduct, their way of life, and the principles they hold fast to. And notice it says that you are to imitate their faith. You're to model it. You're to follow it. You're to emulate it. This is why when we read in the scriptures and it says, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. I say, well, good grief. Paul must think a lot of himself. How arrogant. I don't think it was arrogant. I think he understood the weight of what it was to be a leader in the church. Now, with that in mind, turn over with me, please, to verse 17. Verse 17, the same chapter. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And if we were to take this in context, looking at the chapter as a whole, you would say, well, why should I do that? Well, the reason is, is because they are living a life that you have rolled over and over in your mind. You're seeing the outcome of their faith. You see that they have every indication of finishing well and that they are speaking to you the word of God. And so everything that you would be submitting and obeying to is actually going to be rooted in the foundation of scripture as it's been given by the Holy Spirit. Notice it says, for, there's your causal conjunction, here's the reason why, they keep watch over your what? Soul. Some of us know this. What's another word for souls in the Bible? No? Spirit, soul, and body are separate things. It's a Greek word, suke, your life. They're watching over your life. They're watching over how you're doing in life. They're watching over how you are conducting yourself and whether or not you are upholding the truth of the word. That's what they're concerned with. It says here as they watch over your souls, why? Because they are those who are going to give an account. Now pause for a moment and recognize my plight. Jesus is going to ask me about you. Jesus is going to ask me about you. So by the mercies of God, please do what he says. <laughs> going to have to give an account. How did I or any of the elders here do in our relationship with you? And how did you do in responding in the ways that we sought to minister to you to lead you on a better path? Everybody see why that's kind of an, not kind of, why that's such an important and weighty relationship but we're talking about the organizational structure of the church that the utmost desire of every one of our hearts as leaders would be that you finish well that you run the race with endurance why it's got to be that in because we have to give an account for how we led you in that way and if we are leading you in any way other than to finish well to keep the faith to fight the good fight we failed you, and we will answer for it. Now understand, when we say answer for it, we're not talking about we're in danger of hell. That's not where we're going with this. But we could very well be in danger of experiencing shame before the face of the Lord Jesus when he evaluates our lives and says, and I wouldn't blame him if he did. What were you doing? Didn't I give you this? Yeah. 
And I put you in a church? Yeah. Don't they teach the word? Yeah. What were you doing? I set you up for better than what you're settling for. Now, I don't say that to harp on attitudes and, 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 and behavior, but we get the implications that pour from that because my main focus is dealing with how we emotionally struggle through the idea of church discipline if and when it were to occur. Now, here's the next part of this verse in 17. Let them do this with joy. You think this writer spoke from ex- some experience? Let them do it with joy. Let them have happiness in doing this. Notice what it says. And not with grief. Don't make your leaders grieve. Give them a reason for joy. Why? Because you need to be caring about your leaders more than yourself? That's biblical, but that's not what I'm going for. Look at the reason he gives. For this would be, good word, unprofitable for you. Everybody see this word unprofitable? It means that you're not able to cover the expense. It means that you filled up the cart and you got to the checkout and you couldn't pay because your card was declined. It means that you gain no benefit by being part of the local church. You're constantly running amok in disobedience. That's the idea. So now that I obviously have everybody's attention, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 2. Now we know Corinth, right? There are brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's important for us to say. We are reading about people that we will see in glory. But we're going to, did I say 1 Corinthians? Okay, good. Just making sure. Something's not clicking up here today. You definitely need to check everything I say with the Word of God this morning. Whew. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We know 1 Corinthians. We know the issues they had. They're experiencing divisions in the church. I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. Amazing to think that one whole unified body could have denominations in their self that's causing fractures in the church. And they call that ungodly. Denominations are an ungodly necessity. They truly are. We just can't agree on the word of God for some reason. Then you know they had this great abuse scandal with speaking in tongues. Everybody wanted to speak in tongues. Why? Because it's the coolest. That's the reason why. Everybody's showing up to the Lord's Supper, drinking everything and eating everything they can. And those people who depended on that meal in order to provide for them for a meal in their family had nothing. Selfish people. Paul never doubted their salvation one moment. And we move into 2 Corinthians, which is interesting because we're going to pick up in this conversation. Here's what seems to have happened from this, and it's kind of difficult. It seems to be that there was a letter that was written possibly sometime between 1 and 2 Corinthians. There was a possibility, it seems to me from the scriptures, four letters were written to Corinth. And it seems that we only have letter 2 and letter 4, which we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We don't know what the first letter really had to do much with. Paul kind of alludes to it a little bit. This third letter he refers to, though, and this third letter seems to be that he wrote them a scathing letter about dealing with a problem of somebody who had a mouth that would not stop running. Now, we don't know people like that, so it's hard for me to relate this to us, all right? <clears throat> But the problem was is that he had an issue in wanting to slander Paul. How wrong Paul was. You ever ever had anybody try to tarnish your reputation? 
Isn't it amazing that once a reputation is gone, even if you were completely innocent of everything, it's still damaged? And we like to think that we're all good people. We give each other the benefit of the doubt. Innocent until proven guilty. Does that work? What is wrong with us? (laughs) Our interactions are often devoid of grace. And this is what I want us to see. Because Paul wants to address the situation about his letter and how they responded. And what I want us to see is the emotional turmoil that leadership and church congregation go through when they're having to deal with a church discipline easy or a church discipline situation. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not clean cut and dry. In fact, I would say that if the whole of the body of Christ is not humbly responding to what the plain words of Scripture say, it's the very seedbed that could create division because of personal preferences. And this is the difficulty of what it is to be in the body and to examine sin for what it is, to call it what God calls it, and to stand firm by God's word regardless of what it cost you in the process to be faithful. When this world is over and done with, I won't answer for anything else except were you faithful? And here's the amazing thing. That criteria stands for you as well, regardless of what position you hold in life. Were you faithful with what I gave you? That'll be the question that the Lord wants to have for us. And so it seems here that Paul actually refrained from visiting them because of the sorrow that had taken place. In fact, watch this. Chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Everybody see that word sorrow? Pain. Grief. The situation that he wanted to address had stirred up something deep that rocked people to their cores. And it created a disturbing situation. Paul's thinking here is that if my letter did this to you, my very presence amongst you to deal with it firsthand would even create more problems. How many of you like to go to a sad church? I cannot wait. The first depressed Baptist church of the USA. Let's go. Let's start a church planting effort right now. Nobody wants to go to that. Why? Because let's be honest. That's not what it is to be in Christ, is it? To be in Christ is to have joy inexpressible. And to gather as a body of believers and to worship the King of Kings, that is joy inexpressible. But because of sin, we have to go through sorrowful times. We have to go through pain. We have to go through grief. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. For if I cause you sorrow in his coming to them, if he were to show up physically and it would be a bad situation for them. And, And notice this. Notice that Paul doesn't say, you know what? We should just take this sin and find a nice little bed to sweep it under and not deal with it. Let's just let it go. Just let people be. Just leave it alone. Paul never does that. Because he knows that it has to be dealt with. Why? We're commanded, be holy as God is holy. God has great plans for his church to be spotless and without blemish in his sight. That is the goal we are going for. And if we will hit our earthly goal, we have no problem hitting our heavenly goal. So while we're here in the here and now, 
we are to deal with sin decisively and effectively according to God's word. Notice he says, if I come to you, I'm not looking to create more sorrow. Why does he say that? Who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? By me showing up, you would just get sadder. To say it plainly. And I'm concerned about that. Why? Because when we meet together, it's to be about joy. Regardless if people are in sin and we're having to deal with it, it's supposed to be about a joyous occasion. Verse 3. This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Now why is that, Paul? Why did you write ahead of time so that there wouldn't be sorrow when you arrived? What was the situation surrounding that? And look what he says. Having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. You say, I don't understand anything that he's saying right now. What in the world is he saying? Look at verse 4. Keep reading. If it's a question mark, keep reading and the context will clear it up for you. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul having to sit down and put pen to paper in order to address a church to encourage them to move forward and enact church discipline on somebody who was clearly in sin over a situation, it was not an easy thing for him. The gathering of the body of Christ is to be a joyful one, not a sorrowful one. And he knew in doing this, it was going to create concern. But he also understood that he could not let someone continue to run their mouth, to speak lies, to tarnish reputations, to bring falsehood to the table. That has no place in the body of Christ. And so what we find him doing here is writing a letter ahead of time and encouraging the people and instructing them for what needs to happen in their local body. Now remember this. Even though Paul planted this church, And even though he is considered an elder, he was a traveling elder. He wasn't there permanently in a mainstay, day in, day out, making decisions. He would come for a while, he would encourage, he would teach, he would rebuke, he would exhort. He would love on people, and he needed to move on so he could go and love on some more people. That's how he he moved in his ministry. So he is writing them ahead of time, encouraging them, do the right thing. Obey what we know Christ said in Matthew 18, even though he didn't have Matthew 18 at that time. But he understood it. He understood the need of being faithful in the situation. Look at verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, and now he's pointing to the person who is involved in this affliction. He has caused sorrow not to me. And here's the interesting thing about why Paul says that. It's real easy to take things like that personally. It's real easy to take when someone wants to sin against you personally. Does it hurt? Yes. Does it create sorrow and pain and grief? Yes, it does. But we cannot forget what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. This isn't a put up your dukes, let's meet out in the parking lot kind of thing. There are some churches that operate like that. This is not I'm trying to save face in a situation. All of the problems and afflictions, if they're sinful in nature, are spiritual in nature. Paul understands this. That's why he can sit here and separate his personal being from being sinned against. Has anybody here ever been sinned against? No one? 
Did you take it personally? In fact, that's the first thing we do. Whoa, what? You start speaking in tongues because you don't know how to deal with it. All right? Look what he does. But if any has caused sorrow, he caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, now watch this, in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Or let's say it this way. When one person sins against another person in the body of Christ, it affects the whole body. Everyone's involved. Sin is never an isolated issue. It's never compartmentalized. It's never rationalized as being justified. Sin is never an answer. Because it's either committed out of pride or fear. God did not give us a spirit of fear. And we are told repeatedly almost in every book of the Bible about humility. In fact, I would say this, none of us have any reputation to save. Because if I'm evaluating myself correctly, the only good thing about me is Jesus. That's it. And if I have areas of my life where I am not letting him run the show and be Lord in those situations... Nobody needs to pay a lick of sense to me because he is all in everything and I am nothing. Paul says this affects everybody. This is why everybody has to get involved. He says here, verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punish, punishment which was inflicted by the majority. In other words, when the congregation got his letter and considered what had happened and how Paul felt about it, they recognized that they recognized they need to take action. They had to deal with it. Now let me read you a schnazzy little comment that was made on this verse. By the way, shameless plug here. The Tony Evans Bible commentary is out. Get it. Order it from Lifeway. They have it the cheapest. Amazon will charge you 53 bucks. Lifeway's doing $27. Go for it. Don't care if you got Prime or not, you still saved a lot of money. Christmas is coming up. Buy one for your friend, okay? It is the best one-volume Bible commentary I've seen out on the market right now. It's excellent. Here's what he says. For the health of the church, sin must be addressed. But love and forgiveness must be shown in response to repentance. Now, here's what's happened. The church read Paul's letter and they said, yeah, if we're going to be faithful, we got to deal with it. You have to deal with sin. And so they move forward. And notice what Paul says. It's sufficient. It's fit. It's enough what you've done. For such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. They followed through with it. They were faithful in what Paul called them to do in keeping with the gospel. And they disassociated with him is what seems to be the situation because look at verse 7. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Why? Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. They held this person accountable. And it seems that they disassociated with him. They treated him as a tax collector and a pagan. And they separated fellowship. Why? In order to get his attention about the direness of his sin. You could only knock on a head for so long until you realize that it's hollow. 
And the way that you find out that it's become hollow is because the heart is so hard. And so different measures have to be taken. That's why church disassociation with a wayward brother and sister is not a light thing. And if it is going to infect the health of the body, it cannot stay. I don't know one single person that has ever been diagnosed with cancer and said, you know what, leave it. I think it's going to work out great in the end. Not a person. If that's how we care for our own bodies, why would we not care for the body of Christ with his equal discernment and passion? But here's the problem. It looks like the guy repented. This is finally what cracked that hard exterior. This is finally the dose of discipline that he needed to wake up and recognize, I must be wrong here. In fact, if you want to know what seems like the guy said, you can look over at chapter 10 of this. If you want to turn there, just real quick and mark it. Because it's a quotation that's brought up. Of course, you can't find it anywhere else in the Bible, but it seems to be an assumption that's made about Paul. Chapter 10, verse 10, this seems to be part of it. And I'm sure that Paul was being very gracious when he wrote this so as not to defame anything or to elaborate or dramatize this behavior. Chapter 10, verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. How would you like that to be said about you? He talks a good game, but when he shows up, he's kind of a string bean. You ever been called a string bean? Me neither. (laughs) Praise Jesus. We just avoided the church discipline problem. That's great. But think about it. Personal slander. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that this quotation turns the focus on the person's makeup or the way they display themselves, and not to the contents of the words that they said. Can you see how Paul would be a meek and humble man and yet still tell you the truth that might hurt you a little bit? Yeah. There's no shame in that whatsoever. Maybe Paul wasn't much to look at. Guess what? That's okay. He had a lot of things to say. That was the focus. Back to 2 Corinthians. Now here's the problem. The guy must have repented and here's, let me give you this real quick because we're going to see this. Sorrow is not repentance. Repentance is changing your mind about a situation to experience a change of mind. Okay? And how do you know that repentance has taken place? I've changed my mind. Well, people talk a good game. Especially when they're under church discipline and they're scrambling like cockroaches when the lights came on. Okay? But what you see is that there is a pattern of works of repentance that flow out of that change. Because they're thinking differently, it should logically extend into acting differently, and acting differently displays works of repentance that are not repentance, they are the fruit of repentance. Does that make sense? Okay. So in doing that, notice what it says here, verse 7, so on the contrary, you should rather forgive him, notice that. If he's come to terms with the sin and he says, I was wrong here, And I needed to be set straight. I needed somebody to straighten me out about this situation. And I've humbled myself. I've come to terms with that. And I need to be thinking differently about how I view the Apostle Paul, my brother in Christ now. I am so, so sorry. The church is no longer to treat him like a pagan and a tax collector. Instead, they're to open up their arms and welcome him back in. The church should be ready, poised to forgive. Almost thirsting after the moment that that person will come to terms with their sin and say, 
gosh, guys, I don't know what I was thinking. Just got so wrapped up in ignorance about this. And what is the response of the church? (laughs) Embrace them, love them, encourage them. Kiss them on the forehead. They'll never forget that. You think Jerry Blystone would would forget it if I kissed him on the forehead? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And here's the thing. If we had a previous wayward brother or sister in Christ who repented and we brought them back into the fellowship, they would never forget it either. They would never forget it. Notice it says here, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, if the church does not take the step after church discipline has concluded and brought the desired end of reconciliation between brothers and sisters in the body, if we don't get on the ball to forgive, love, comfort, embrace, encourage, build up, because we've definitely probably been praying for him this entire time, right? So this is God answering our prayers and turning the hard heart back. They will become what? What's it say? They will be overwhelmed by excessive, everybody see this? By excessive sorrow. Now here's the interesting thing. If the wayward brother or sister had not repented, it is perfectly reasonable for the church to continue in a stance of not comforting this person. In fact, we're told in the remainder of what we were dealing with last week in 1 Corinthians 5, if you were to read on that whole chapter, don't even eat with someone who's got this going on so that they will experience shame. We live in such a tolerant society, I'm afraid that infects the body of Christ. Christ is not tolerant of sin. Gracious towards sin? Yes. Is he tolerant of it? No. God is not tolerant of sin. That's the whole reason why Jesus died. He can't tolerate sin, and so somebody's got to pay for it. And so he dies on the cross to pay for our problem. He was intolerant about sin, and he brought in a solution to deal with it. Moving on. We don't want him to experience excessive sorrow. Verse 8, wherefore, I urge you, Reaffirm your love for him. Let him know he's loved. Let him know. My wife was watching an awesome show. Everybody seen that brain game show? Everybody seen that? They'll give you a topic and they'll judge how people respond in certain situations. And this guy was going to um, this, he'd been called in, asked if he'd participate in a study. And as he rounded the corner, some guy would come around at well-timed. It was all well-timed. The person coming didn't know. The guy coming through did. And he would bump into him, kind of do like the shoulder thing with that. Like, hey, watch it, buddy. What's wrong with you? Kind of thing. And then they would have to go in and take this test. How do you think they responded in the test? They found that if the person giving the test was very cold and dry, and he maybe even a little bit harsh with them, get in here and sit down. Let's get this over with kind of thing, that they carried that interaction into this situation and actually became full of revenge in the choices they had in this test. But when they came in, and if the guy conducting the test said, hey, it's really great to see you this morning. You're looking well today. Why don't you sit down? Let's go through this. This is great. Found that all of a sudden they were making better choices. You know what that tells me? It tells me that these people did a test for what the Bible already tells me. Encourage one another always. 
lest there be an unbelieving heart in any of you, speaking to believers, encourage one another always. When a believer repents from sin, that the churches have to be involved in disciplining, and they have come soberly to terms with it, and have returned to the body, then the body should have arms so wide open to embrace them and love them, that you can't help but to have the aroma of Christ himself permeating this place. If forgiveness is warranted, let's be quick to forgive. I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I also wrote. Notice Paul said, I didn't just write you bad stuff. I hope you read the end of the letter. I wrote you good stuff too. So that I might put you to the what? Uh Uh-oh, stop, church. It's a test. It's a test. How will you respond If and when Grace Bible Church has to go through a church discipline situation and not just remain faithful in calling sin a sin and making the hard decisions for however long that person wants to persist, their ill reception of God's word and counsel and even go to disassociation, but if they come to their senses and have humbled themselves the word of God, repented in the situation, will the church pass that test? It's easy to think of disassociation as a vindictive thing. It's not. It should grieve all of us to our core. But Paul is having to guide a church in a difficult situation from a far off place. And he says, if you want to do it right, if you want to pass the test successfully, reaffirm your love for this person. You disciplined out of love. At least I hope that's the reason why. Now, reconcile out of love. Bring the person in out of love. Notice it's a test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything. Now watch this. This is interesting what Paul says. If the local church decides to forgive this person and they've repented for it, look what Paul says. What's he say, church? I, notice that, I forgive also. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say, well, because I've already forgiven this guy and it was me that was you know, personally offended by this whole situation, y'all need to shape up and do it too because it didn't hurt you near as bad as it did me. Everybody notice Paul doesn't go that direction? Notice that Paul doesn't put his, himself at the center of the altercation even though it involved him. He's saying that he respects the autonomy of the local church. If the church has come together and decided to move forward with forgiveness, then I respect the leadership of that local church and will move forward in forgiveness with you. It's amazing. Just because Paul had founded the church and started it didn't mean that he paraded any of his rights with it. He's an apostle that Christ has personally appeared to and personally commissioned to the Gentiles, and yet he doesn't pull rank on them. He falls in line with their decision. He humbles himself behind their lead and lets them lead forward. Notice he says here as well, Indeed, I have forgiven him. If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now don't miss this. Did Paul already forgive and maybe not let the Corinthians know about it? Yes. Was he waiting for their decision to lead forward in forgiveness? Yes. Did he fall in line behind? Their mode of forgiveness? Yes. But he also understands a grand reason why it needed to happen that way. Watch this. So that, everybody see the word so that in 11? He's getting ready to give you the reason. In fact, overwhelmingly, so that, unless the context dictates otherwise, 
You need to write above so that R-E-A-S-O-N, here's the reason, don't miss it. So that no advantage would be taken of us by who? Stop for a second. By who? What in the world is he doing in the church? Who invited him? Think about your answer. You see what I'm saying? When you've got people who are rebelling and willingly persisting in sin without responding to wise counsel, without refusing to submit themselves to God's word, you just invited Satan to church. You just invited Satan to church. Might as well get him a cup of coffee, have him sit down right next to you, right? Because if we're not going to stand on the word of God, what in the world are we standing on? Notice what Paul's saying. Forgiveness had to happen because when you have a church that doesn't forgive, you actually have Satan who is preeminent. Why? Bitterness kills a church. That's the reason why. Notice what he says. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Why? Because unforgiveness creates a bitter body. Unforgiveness creates a bitter body it creates a body that became more concerned about personal rights than loving and comforting a wayward person forgiveness had to take place what is forgiveness forgiveness is agreeing to live with the consequences of someone else's actions and move forward it's not forgetting it is recognizing That if you hold on to it, the only person that's getting ate up over it is you. So the church has to be poised to forgive. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, bring up, I think it's in Luke, the passage real quick. You guys know this one. Or maybe it's Matthew uh, 18, Luke, I can't remember. Bring up something other than what we're looking at right now, Mitch. (laughs) There it is, Matthew 18. Yes, it moves on from what we were seeing in the steps of church discipline. It's interesting that this right here follows... Jesus' instructions on church discipline. He gives you the steps, but then look what he says. Then Peter, of course it had to be Peter, right? Came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? For some of us, somebody ticks us off two times, they're out the door. So I consider Peter being very gracious here. And he, I believe that he believes he's being gracious. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, do I also have a passage from Luke in there right after that? Bring that up, because this helps give you clarification. You can compare gospels and scripture with scripture. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, what? Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, does that sound familiar? And returns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, what? Forgive him. Does that mean if he doesn't return that we are to hold that against him? My encouragement to you would be still seek to forgive him. But as far as having the conversation of humbling yourself before them and embracing it and saying, I love you and I forgive you. That's not a relationship that can take place. Forgive them personally? Absolutely. Why? It'll eat you up. It will eat you up. Bitterness is not the body of Christ. So how we handle these situations, hypothetically, 
They, they seem so serious when we're looking at them on the, on the pages. These are our brothers and sisters of a former time that were dealing with very real issues in their church, and we get to see it warts and all and learn from it. I pray that we're all humble in addressing that. Now, I debated whether or not I should say something, but I'm going to. And I debated about this last week, and I said something that the Holy Spirit brought great conviction over me, and to you I apologize for saying what I said. I'm sorry I was wrong. But I feel like this needs to be said. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. I've been here for two and a half years. Two years before that, this church experienced a split. And I have purposefully not addressed it or dealt with it. Not because I'm trying to ignore it, but because looking at the situation over and over again does not help you move forward. Getting a glimpse of Jesus Christ and the truthfulness of his word does. But let me say this by way of application of what we see now. From all of you that I've talked with, that was a time of sorrow, pain, grief. And let me go ahead and publicly state this without apology. Your leadership was not wrong. You cannot have someone adding stipulations onto salvation of requirement or works that they are expected to evidence or do before you will consider that person saved or not. That puts the focus on you, not on Christ. This leadership here had to make a very hard decision. No, I wasn't in the midst of it. No, I don't know everything that went on. But I know that when you have doctrinal error in the church, you have to deal with it. And they did. Whether it was well or not, I hope that everyone here would be humble to forgive that and see the good that God has brought about on the other side. But I will say this, if it is something that is still hanging on to you, and if you have not forgiven the people that you harbor those concerns against, whether it be to their face or whether it's just personally, Bitterness has become a roadblock for moving the body of Christ forward. Enough time has passed. Enough prayer has been had. And hopefully enough of the Bible has been chewed on and digested to recognize that unforgiveness is a horrible option. And so if there is a situation where you feel that you just maybe need to come to God, maybe you can't go to people in those personal situations, that's okay. God knows he's not ridiculous about things. He is a loving father. He just wants us to do the right thing. Then I encourage you, use a moment while this song is going on, and if you need longer, you can do so, in order to give that stuff up to God and get rid of it. Not asking you to forget, but I am asking you to understand that those consequences are something that have to be lived with. Forgive the people. Because what they don't need is they don't need more bats over the head. They need the love of Christ to minister to their hearts. And the way that God loves to do that is through you and me. He uses his body for his purposes. It's his body. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you desire great things for this local body to accomplish. We have a message of change that needs to be talked about. We have the gospel that brings people from death to life. And in uniting us in your body, you call for us to hold fast to the word of God. Call for us to deal with sinful situations. 
You call for us to take whatever action is necessary to protect your body, to love your body, nurture, edify, encourage, exhort, teach. Father, we all have a great responsibility, whether we recognize it or not, as believers in your body. Too often the enemy has been allowed to claim ground that does not belong to him. As blood-bought people, it is incredible to think that anyone else would have claim to us. And yet, for some reason, unforgiveness hands our birth certificate to another too often. Churches experience sorrow and grief, pain that would be unimaginable and inexpressible, in some cases even debilitating. The Word of God is worth it. We are promised that we will be co-heirs with Christ should we suffer with Him. Jesus is always about His truth at all times. But Lord, if we've allowed for Satan to get a foothold in this situation, now is the time to confess that. Lay it down. Put it at your feet. Place it in your hands. You've always handled life's troubles better than we ever could. And be poised to forgive, to embrace, and to love. This is all that Christ has done for us. We're just doing in response to what He's already done for us. He is our example. He is our model. He is our God and King. Father, help us to come to terms with those things, to remove pride and renounce self, and to praise You and to honor You because You are exceedingly gracious. Pray it in the name of Christ, our Comforter.